I'm Nikki Strong, and this is VOA One, The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Dan Friedel. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower, and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, Faith Perlow and I bring you the Higher Education Report. This week, we look at interesting college classes that are not always part of a student's main university study program. Often, these classes are known as electives. Then, Andrew Smith brings us words and their stories. In this episode, you will learn about the ups and the downs of the English language. Following Andrew is Kelly Jean Kelly. She has the next chapter in our series on America's presidents. This week, you will learn about the third U.S. president, Thomas Jefferson. And now... Here's the Higher Education Report. When students think about college classes in the United States, they often think about the ones that will result in a degree. A science student might take a number of biology and chemistry classes. However, most American universities permit students to take several classes outside of their study program or major. In fact, Most universities require students to take classes outside of their major in order to gain general knowledge. At Brandeis University near Boston, students who study for a degree in biology must take a number of core classes. In addition, students also take classes called electives that do not fall into either their core studies or their major. Some of these classes cover unusual subjects. At the University of Texas, you can take a class called the Taylor Swift Songbook. At Amherst College in Massachusetts, there is a class called Rap, Reagan, and the 1980s. VOA Learning English spoke with one international student and two professors about electives. When Jesper Phillips of Norway arrived at Bates College in Maine, he took a class for first-year students called The Local Politics of a Global Game. It was about soccer. Phillips wanted to go to a school with good science classes. He also wanted to keep playing squash an indoor racket sport. So he chose to attend Bates. He finished school in 2022 with degrees in both physics and math. He also was the top player on the school squash team. He now works as a data scientist for Microsoft. He enjoyed school at Bates because the classes were very small. The largest had about 20 students, 
and one special physics class had only four. The politics of soccer class was part of the college's first-year seminar program. Other classes that year included reading Cats and Dogs, about animals in famous writing, and contemporary comedy, a class that studied humor in writing, podcasting, and in movies or television. All the options are going to be unrelated to your major, Phillips said, when discussing the classes. Phillips said he had to explain the reason for the class to family and friends at home. Yeah, I got I got a few comments that are really really spending my time well in the U.S. and really 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 getting value for it. So there was definitely some question marks, but once I kind of explained the purpose of it, they were a bit more, a bit more open to the idea. Phillips said that the class is supposed to help students learn what college expects of them. They had writing projects and a lot of discussions. They learned about a syllabus or class plan, and how to cite their sources when writing. He thinks about the class every four years during the World Cup. Phillips also made friends. He still talks with five years later. At the University of North Dakota's medical school in Fargo, students studying to be doctors can take Jeremy Holloway's class called "Legacy Building with Older Adults." Holloway's class helps medical students make connections with elderly people by setting up in-person conversations or video calls. Holloway said he hopes the students learn how to see older adults as human beings, and not as a different species. The point of the class is not the same as others at a medical school. In those classes, students might learn about the human body. Or how to treat disease. In his class, Holloway said he wants to help young students learn to see people first, and not think of them as their job positions or titles, such as doctor, nurse, or professor. I always said the the title that's more important to me is Jeremy because that's what my mom gave me. My dad gave me that.、Um, mm-hmm. It'll be the most important title. That I'll have until I die. Holloway said international students in his class learn something from older adults, and adults learn from the international students. First, many of the older adults have never met someone from another country. Second, when the students make friends with an older American, he said, it really helps them to learn the culture of the United States. At Indiana University, Robert Kunzman teaches about learning from failure. The class is called Failure: How We Can Learn from It. Kunzman said it is important for students to think about questions and topics that they might not have planned for. He said taking a class outside of their main study program. Is a good way to broaden their horizons and ways of thinking about the world. 
The course tells students how people in many different professions learn from failure. In medicine, a patient might die from cancer. In business, a company might lose money and close. In both cases, Kunzman said, we learn more when we fail because we're forced to consider what we need to do differently in the future. Kunzman said he gets students from all across campus in his class. Their fields include business, science, engineering, journalism, and public policy. They learn a lot more, he said, than just sitting in class with students from their own majors. He said one of the most important lessons for students to learn is that it is all right to take calculated risks. I think that what's important is to develop a capacity to make good judgments, to make good decisions about the chances that we take, and to develop strategies that allow us to learn from the times when we fail, when things don't work out. Kunzman agrees with Holloway, who said, there's a need for these kinds of experiences. They believe students cannot get a full education by only taking the courses that are required for their major. Sometimes, Kunzman said, it is hard for students to understand. It might be good to make time for an elective. After all, many feel pressure to finish school and start working. But he noted, the educational experience can be supplemented and supported by courses that allow the student to think about questions that are important to having a meaningful career and a long-term impact on their society and themselves. I'm Dan Friedel. And I'm Faith Perlow. I'm Dan Friedel, and you're listening to the Learning English Broadcast. I'm joined now by my colleague, Faith Perlow. Faith, thank you for your help on that story. You're welcome, Dan. So, Faith, I remember taking one elective class when I was in college where I had to drive to another university. The class was called Sports Psychology, and it was only offered at Boston College. It was fun to be in a class with students from a different school. I wonder, did you take any interesting classes in college? Actually, I did, Dan. I took a lot of weird classes. Um, I even took a class about vampires. Wait, what? Tell me more. Um, it was actually a foreign literature class at West Virginia University. It was called Vampires, Blood, and Revolution. The class wasn't an elective, though. It counted towards my major, which was Slavic studies. So we learned about history, Vlad the Impaler. We read books like Dracula. 
And we even watched TV shows and movies like True Blood and Blade. And then we traveled the following summer to Romania. And we went to places like Transylvania, like Braun Castle, which is actually Dracula's castle. It was pretty fun. Faith, that is pretty cool. And there you are calling out the famous Wesley Snipes classic movie, Blade. I had no idea that you'd get to take a class where that movie would be on the schedule. Yep. We had a pretty cool professor. Thanks for spending some time telling me and our listeners about it. You're welcome, Dan. Happy to help. And now, words and their stories from VOA Learning English. Up and down. High and low. These short words describe more than just directions. They also connect to our feelings and experiences. In this episode of Words and Their Stories, we'll start down low and end up high. Many cultures around the world connect the words low or down with something negative. This is because our minds can easily connect low places like the floor or the ground with dirt. So when someone asks, how low can you go? They are expressing their opinion that another person's behavior is bad in a moral or ethical sense. If you are down and out, that means you are poor, without enough money for the things you need. And if you are down in the dumps, that means you feel unhappy or depressed. Next, let's look at two down expressions that relate to either getting or keeping information. They sound similar, but have different meanings. The following exchange uses one of these expressions. So, did Maria tell you anything? She did. But keep this on the down low. She's going to quit her job next month. Oh my gosh. Wow, that is big news. I know. But she doesn't want anyone else to know. No worries. I'll keep it on the DL. To keep something on the down low means to keep information secret. Speakers often say the shortened form on the DL, when using the expression. On the other hand, if you want the lowdown on a situation, that means you want to get the information. For example, Did Jane give you the lowdown on the budget? Yeah. She said they can't afford to do a summer project this year. So, 
Getting the lowdown means you are getting information. Keeping it on the down low means you are keeping information away from people. Now let's move up to a few expressions with high. Imagine you are driving in an area with a lot of traffic. You see a car waiting to turn onto your street, so you stop and let that car make the turn. But this makes the car behind you slow down. The driver of this car now honks the horn for a long time, leans out the car window, and shouts at you. At this point, you have a choice. You can also shout in return, or you can take the high road and not answer. To take the high road means to behave in a way that is morally correct, even when other people around you are not behaving well. Our next expression relates to time. Sometimes there are things that people should do, but they wait longer than necessary to do them. By waiting, they sometimes create problems or make things worse. In these situations, we can use the phrase "It's high time" to say that people have delayed doing something for too long. For example, someone can say, "It's high time you cleaned up that apartment. It is so dirty." Next, we look at the word "highfalutin." If you say someone is highfalutin, that means you think the person is overly fancy or pompous. Highfalutin is usually A negative way of referring to ways of speaking and behaving, according to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of American English, the first known use of this word was in 1839 in the United States. Finally, you can end on a high note by. Connecting to another words and their stories program. There, you can learn more expressions about highs and lows. Then, give yourself a high five for reading and listening to this week's words and their stories. I'm Andrew Smith. VOA Learning English presents America's Presidents. Today we are talking about John Adams. In 1796, he was elected as the country's second president. Being second can be difficult. 
and being the second president of a new country, following a popular first president such as George Washington, turned out to be extremely difficult. For one thing, Adams did not always get along with other people. He was known to get angry easily, and often. Adams also was leader of a divided administration. His own vice president often disagreed with him, passionately. The situation was the result of a rule in the Constitution at the time. It said the person who received the majority of votes became president. The person with the second largest number of votes became vice president. The rule worked fine for the first two elections. Washington had won the presidency, and Adams won the vice presidency. The two men belonged to the same political party. And shared many points of view, but in 1796, Adams' opponent in the election, Thomas Jefferson, became the vice president. The two men were personal friends, but political enemies. President Adams supported a strong federal government that protected the interests of business and the wealthy. Vice President Jefferson, on the other hand, Wanted to limit the power of the federal government. As a result, Adams and Jefferson often clashed. Adams also made what many historians consider a mistake in choosing his cabinet. Adams simply kept George Washington's official advisers, mostly to satisfy political opponents. But later. Adams learned that many of his cabinet members opposed him too. Historian John Furling says Adams was in over his head, and started swimming upstream, almost from the start of his presidency. On top of all that. Adams faced a foreign policy crisis. After the French Revolution, Great Britain allied with other European nations against France. They wanted to keep the unrest from spreading to their countries. Adams worked hard to make sure the U.S. did not get pulled into a war between France and Great Britain. But France did not trust the U.S. It tried to interrupt trade by seizing U.S. ships. Adams wanted to resolve the problem peacefully. He threatened military action, but he also sent diplomats to talk with French officials. Adams aimed for an honorable peace with France. It took some time, but he got it. Historian John Furling says. Although the crisis in Europe caused Adams endless trouble, he dealt with it well. Many years later, Adams wrote that the greatest jewel in his crown was reaching peace with France. Even if Adams struggled as president, 
he was successful in other parts of his life. He grew up outside the city of Boston. His father was a farmer, as well as a church official and town leader. However, Adams chose to attend Harvard University and become a lawyer. Adams was a very good lawyer. In fact, he was one of the busiest lawyers in Boston. His success enabled him to buy a big, two-story house that still stands in Quincy, Massachusetts. Adams also had a happy marriage. The relationship between him and his wife, Abigail, is one of the best known of that time. The two wrote many letters to each other during the years they were apart. More than 1,000 of their letters still survive today. John and Abigail Adams were both passionate patriots who supported the American Revolution. They also agreed about the issue of slavery. Unlike many founding families of the U.S., the couple did not own slaves and spoke out against the system of people owning other people. In November of 1800, John and Abigail Adams moved to the executive mansion in Washington, D.C. Adams was the first president to live in what we now call the White House. They would not stay long, however. Adams was facing a difficult re-election campaign. His vice president, Thomas Jefferson, was running against him. His party was divided. Many Federalists supported other candidates. And some voters did not like his decisions, including creating a permanent army, raising taxes, and limiting the rights of immigrants. Those four laws, called the Alien and Sedition Acts, extended the time that immigrants had to wait before becoming U.S. citizens. They permitted the government to detain citizens from enemy nations without reason during wartime. The laws also permitted the president to expel foreign citizens he believed were dangerous. And they made criticizing the president or Congress a crime. Adams said the acts aimed to control people in the U.S. who supported France. But many politicians at the time argued that the laws mostly affected people who supported the opposing political party. Historian John Furling says they were right, and he says Adams may have been using the Alien and Sedition Acts to protect his political career, but they ended up damaging his public image. They also raised the question for the first time of whether states had the right to ignore a federal law if they disagreed with it. Supporters of Vice President Thomas Jefferson used Adams' approval of the Alien and Sedition Acts against him effectively. Jefferson's campaign said Adams exercised so much power as president 
that he must want the U.S. to become a monarchy. Adams' campaign said Jefferson was a radical who would bring revolution to the country. The U.S. had never experienced such an ugly election before. Some people wondered whether the country would be able to transfer power peacefully. When Jefferson won, however, Adams did not resist. He retired to his farm in Massachusetts. Adams spent most of his retirement writing. He even began exchanging long letters with his old friend and old enemy, Thomas Jefferson. The two men discussed their families, their thoughts on politics and religion, and their nation's history. The letters were both personally and historically meaningful. Adams and Jefferson were the last living members of the original patriots who started a new country. On July 4, 1826, the nation's 50th birthday, the two friends, patriots, and former U.S. presidents died within hours of one another. I'm Kelly Jean Kelly. And that's the Learning English broadcast for today. We hope the week ahead is filled with only ups and no downs. Thank you for listening. And thanks to all my VOA colleagues for their work on today's program. We hope you listen again tomorrow. I'm Dan Friedel.